So let me read it first, and then we'll look at it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they are the uh, senders of the letter. To the church of the Thessalonians, they are the receivers of the letter, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Now, as Christians, we believe this is God's Word, and therefore it is not my voice that we look to hear, but His voice speaking from His Word. So let's ask Him in prayer to speak to us. Our Father, this letter is, we believe, Your living Word. It is Your voice we want to hear. So will You speak to us clearly and powerfully for Jesus' sake? Amen. Now, as I said, there are some notes on the service sheet that uh, will help you. Let me spend just a few minutes, and only a few minutes, on explaining by way of introduction why Paul wrote this letter. Every one of the New Testament letters is a letter, and when you write a letter, you write a letter for a reason. So, for example, when you want somebody to marry you, as I did, You write to them and ask them. That's an old-fashioned way of doing it. So you write for a reason. When someone gives you a gift, you write a thank you letter. And the New Testament letters are not kind of textbooks or theological books. They're letters written to churches and individuals for reasons. Why did Paul write this letter? Now, you'll see on the service sheet there a reference to Acts chapter 17. You can read that in your own time. Acts 17 records how the church in Thessalonica had begun. Paul and Silas had gone there as a part of their missionary journey, and uh, they'd gone and they'd preached the gospel, and there had been an astonishing response. People became Christians. But after just three weeks, Paul and Silas, with a a whole pile of flack and opposition directed against them, had to leave 
Thessalonica. And so they left this little fledgling church full of genuine real Christians after just three weeks. And the months passed. Paul and Silas went from Thessalonica down the road to Berea and then on to Athens. And all the time in Paul's heart, how are these Christians faring? He had a real bond with them. And eventually, nine to twelve months later, we read in uh, the letter, in the middle of uh, our letter, Paul could stand it no longer. And he sends Timothy, his companion, back to Thessalonica to see how they are doing. And I suspect in Paul's heart, he would have thought, look, this church has caved in. There's nothing left. Maybe one or two converts still going on. And then Timothy comes back to him, and he says, Paul, and he must have been smiling, and he said, Paul, this church is thriving. These Christians are standing fast in the Lord. And Paul picks up his pen, and he writes this letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians. And the primary purpose of this letter is to encourage Christians, to reassure them, to encourage them that what has happened to them or is happening to them, their experience as Christians is real, genuine Christianity. And when Paul speaks about what is genuine Christianity, he reassures them if that is their experience, and he inspires them to go on for another year. Why are we studying this letter? Well, as your minister, I want to preach it because I want you to be encouraged. And and we try to prayerfully choose which parts of the Bible we turn to at different times of our church life. I want you to be encouraged by what Paul says is real, authentic Christianity. And if that describes your life, if it describes our church's life, then my prayer is that the Word of God will come to us like a great big dose of steadiness. What's happening in your life is real. Keep going. What's happening in your church is real. Keep going. Now, of course, there's an edge to this, isn't there? A question Paul will keep asking implicitly, sometimes explicitly, is this your experience? Is this your experience as a church? Are we real? Are you a real Christian? That's what you'll ask. And if you're not, then... I hope that you will be by the end of the letter. Drawn to Jesus. Not persuaded by me or the other preachers, but drawn to him by himself, by his spirit. So this letter has wonderful potential to steady, to reassure, to become. Now, to chapter 1. 
where Paul gives thanks to God for their real spiritual life. Paul, in a sense, wants to say to them, look, what is going on in your churches, your lives is real. Some of you will remember, uh, youngies not, I need to change the illustration for the next service. You're not all young, you see. Some of you will remember the Antiques Roadshow. Do you remember that? I don't know if it's still on now. It's one of these programs like Songs of Praise. I think they try to get it off the schedules, but 20 squillion people watch it, so they can. And uh, the two bits on that program are wonderful. The best bit is when you tell you how much it's worth. We all like that bit the best. The second best bit is when some expert uh, tells you whether it's real or fake. And uh, this little old lady comes with this masterpiece that she thinks she has in her attic, and the person says, I'm sorry, it was kind of painted in Birmingham. (laughs) And uh, you watch these experts, they look through a magnifying glass, got some tiny little mark on the leg of a chair, and they say, oh, yes, this is 5,000 years old. It's a real thing. Now, here in chapter 1, Paul is saying, look, you, you experience as a church, this is not a fake, not a copy, it's the real, real thing. And in the Christian life, what is not real is often very close to look like real, but it's not real in the end. They're real. Now, and what he's doing is he's saying, look, I remember when I was with you a year ago. I remember what I saw. I remember what I saw in you. I've been here long enough as minister now, seven years and a bit, to remember stuff. I remember Jack and Jen. Where's Jen? She's gone. (laughs) You tell her later. I remember Jen and Jack when they became Christians. Jen was brought along to church here, I think seven years ago, by a fellow called Michael Adamson, who's now in Ireland, a doctor. Some of you can remember him. And Jen, I think, came with other intentions in her heart. But she found Jesus. She became a clear Christian, and her life changed. Jack, I think it was four or five years ago with you, you came to the pub quiz, you came to the football, and you came to church, and you became a Christian. You you were changed very dramatically, very suddenly. In our elders' meetings, we deal with all sorts of stuff business, important issues, but the stuff that matters most, that means the most to us, is seeing and talking about spiritual life in people. This week, we spoke of a girl called Cecile, who's become a Christian. We'll baptize her in a couple of weeks' time. Across our church, for the first time, it really thrills my heart to hear of people speaking about Jesus, reading Mark's gospel people. It's happening across the church. It's real. It's really real. It's genuine. Notice what Paul does. As soon as you start seeing genuine spiritual food in a church, we give thanks not to the people that share the gospel with you, but to God who opened your heart. Now, on the sheet, you'll see there some marks of genuineness. It's what a real Christian is like, what a real Christian church is like. Faith, love, and hope. Verse 3, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine Christianity is evidenced by faith, love, and hope. What are they, practically? Now, faith, love, and hope are not concepts or ideals 
that exist in the spiritual ether. They're not sentimental things in the clouds. They're down-on-the-ground stuff. Practical, day-to-day Christian living. Notice what Paul says. He speaks about the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. Work, labor, steadfastness. Graft, commitment, practical reality. The life of faith, Jack and Jen, is not easy, is it? It's not easy. That was a little moment like if you were a preacher in Africa, Jack actually answered Oh, this is scary when that happens. <laughs> Loving people is not easy in a church. Hope in Jesus is so often assailed with doubts. So it needs steadfastness. Faith, love, and hope is a concept, as an ideal, as a sentiment, is not real Christianity. Real Christianity is work of faith. Labor of love, steadfastness of hope. So what are they? Work of faith. True faith in God is expressed in work or works. We're saved by grace alone, as we've sung again and again today. We're not saved by doing stuff. But once we are saved, we do stuff as a consequence of it. So, for example, an old lady who comes to an evening to a church prayer meeting on the bus. Why does she come? That's a work of faith. That's what it means. A young man who turns up early in church to set up, he's not looking for a reward. There is no reward. Why does he do it? Because he has faith, a work of faith. A young woman who invites her friend to a guest event or an investigating Christianity course. What is it? It is a work of faith to do that. People giving an evening a month to care for the homeless in our city. Why? A work of faith. Or a couple, Jack and Jen, at the end of an exhausting day who put aside time to pray for their daughter. Or to think together about how they might best use their family time A work produced by faith. And who says that doesn't need graft in the real grist to the mill of life? That's what this means, the practical expression, the practical outworking of Christian faith. And of course, it blesses people. It serves people. It builds them up and encourages them. Those who exercise works of faith this morning from half past six in the morning. Blessed us, because we just turn up and are blessed by being here. That's a work of faith. And it's great to see it give people pleasure and build up the body of Christ. And Jack and Jen, when you speak to little Katie of Jesus, that work of faith, at the end of the day, you will think that she's not heard anything you have said. But in God's grace and over time, she will have. What about a labor of love? The love Paul is speaking of here is not love for God, but love for our fellow believers within the Christian community. It's the love that goes horizontally across the church family. I'm amused that Paul describes it as a labor of love. (laughs) A labor of love. What an authentic Christian community 
looks like is all over the church that is selfless, sacrificial, practical love for one another and labor of love for each other. Now, at the end of the letter, Paul illustrates what that means. Just glance forward to chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor, notice the word, among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul is speaking about the leaders or elders of the church. What do they do? What should they do? They labor among you. They work. And as minister, I want to commend the elders in Chalmers for doing just that, for their labor among you, their work. It is a labor of love. I'm sure they do not always love the work they do, but they love you, which is why they work for you. There are times as minister that I could jack in my job, and I say that in all sincerity, just hard often, the work. But the time for me to jack in the job as minister of this church is when I no longer love you. That's the key. That's the key. That's the important bit. It's love for God's people that makes you labor and work for them. What does it look like? Verse 14 of chapter 5, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, that's the labor of love that goes on in a church. That's what makes a church real. That's what makes a small group in a church lead. That's what makes a minister real. It's what makes an elder real. What do they do? Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one has a go at someone. That's a real church. It's great, these phrases. Encourage the faint. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. That's real, meaningful, intentional, transformative loving. It's a labor of love that turns a church into a community of faith. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Christian hope in our Lord Jesus Christ? Christian hope is the hope of glory. It is the hope of resurrection to everlasting life. It is living in light of that eternal reality. And just think of a a normal church, family like hers, and, and, and the Christians in our church believe with all their heart that when we die, we will be raised to life. But you don't kind of live that kind of stuff easily, do you? It needs steadfastness. My wife was down in Sheffield this week at the funeral of her minister growing up. I had a day of my own with the children. It was a very dull dinner they had, and I did, in fact, ask anyone I saw that day, do you think it would be appropriate or otherwise if I took them to McDonald's? And every single one of them said, yes, it would be inappropriate. So I didn't. That man, Roy Denton, who died, some of you will know him. Some of you have been in the Fullwood Church. That man, Roy Denton, if I could describe it, steadfastness of hope, right till his death. In our elders' meeting this week, we minuted formally in our minutes a tribute to Ed Sked, who died at Christmas, a man who did more in this church's history than anyone. Humbly, how would you describe Ed? Steadfastness 
of hope. It's exactly what a real Christian is. Now, we could spend all day in these marks. We need to crack on. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. Are they marks in your life? Are you working as a result of faith? Are you laboring for each other prompted by love? And are you enduring inspired by hope? Many, many of you are. Are we as a church working as an expression of faith, laboring for one another out of love? Enduring, inspired by hope. In many ways, yes. Secondly, deep conviction, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Deep conviction. There's another mark of real spiritual life, of real Christianity. And Paul has two things in mind, I think. I think, firstly, the conviction of the message And secondly, the conviction the message brings to the soul. What they heard in Thessalonica when Paul and Silas came and preached to them were not just human words, but God's word to them. What they heard was powerful, a message accompanied by the Spirit of God. And those who brought that message to them, Paul and Silas, were convicted. There is a difference, I think, between hearing the real Christian gospel and hearing just words. The difference is as great as east is from west or as night is from day. When you hear the real Christian gospel, you hear conviction. And it has nothing to do with the rhetorical skill of the preacher. It has nothing to do with that. It is truth animated by the Spirit of God, and you know it when you hear it. It either leads to acceptance or rejection. Really indifference. And let me encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to listen if you hear God's voice. It's important you do. And I hope that in Chalmers as a church, the real gospel remains and is heard. Why? Because it is the only message in the end that convicts the soul. The conviction Paul speaks about here, ultimately, I think, is the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings into somebody's life. So, as elders this week, we spoke about Cecile, she might even be here this morning. She's young, so she'll probably come to the next service. What we, Mary and Naomi and I met her last Sunday, and what did we see? We saw a young woman in whose life the Spirit of God has convicted about sin. About Jesus. about her need to do something. That's what the true message of the gospel does in a soul. 
And in a living Christian community, people don't, don't join it as a lifestyle decision. They come into a Christian community and they join the kingdom of God through conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jack, I remember seeing that happen in your life when you became a Christian. It was real. It was authentic. And how do we know? It's gone on. Here you are five years later. Cost and joy. There's a strange paradox. That's the next mark of real Christianity. Second half of verse 5, you know what kind of men we put to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Their authenticity was evidenced in the fact that their experience was the same as Paul and Silas. And beyond them, the Lord Jesus, they received the word in much affliction. All true followers of Jesus, all true churches, experience cost and opposition. It's normal. You don't seek it. It just comes as part of the territory. They received affliction. It is not easy, Jack and Jen, know to be a Christian. It's not easy to speak of Jesus. It's not easy as a church to hold fast to the Word of God. It is not easy. You know that as well as me. And yet, even in that affliction, there is joy. How can there be joy? How can there be affliction and joy joined at the hip? Just that's because it's real and supernatural and of God. It's not joy in an effusive way, or although we could do with more of that, it's just kind of deep-grounded reality of knowledge that one is safe in Christ. Joy in the Lord in the midst of affliction. Cost and joy. Cost and joy. Then telling others of Jesus, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of God sounded forth from you, the NIV translation is better, the word of God rang out like a bell from you. Isn't that great? Rang out like a bell. Jack, this is my last illustration of you. You can relax after this. One of my most vivid memories of your conversion was immediately you came with me and with John Torrance, who was training here to Dundee to do the student mission. Remember that? And you were out there everywhere on the campus. Before you realized how hard it is. It's what people who are converted do. It's what we as a church are learning to do to share our faith. Telling others of Jesus. And then finally, others see the real difference the gospel makes. The second half of verse 8 Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Paul refers in verse 8b to their faith in God that has gone forth everywhere. Not, I think, referring to their speaking the message. Rather, the news spreading about the real transformation that had happened in their lives or the genuineness 
of their conversion. Others see the real difference the gospel makes. People look and see the real difference the gospel makes. They see a difference in individuals. They see a difference in churches. What do they see? What is it they see? They see faith. They see love. They see hope. They see conviction. They see cost. They see joy. They see telling others of Jesus. These are the marks of genuineness. People see them. And more importantly, God sees them. You see, the primary application of this is not what others think of us as a church. It's what God thinks of us. How do we know what God thinks of us? If this describes us, this letter, then God says, look, just keep steady. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. If there is faith and hope and love, if there is conviction and joy and cost, if there is telling the gospel, well, it's not a fake church. Paul ends. He always finishes with a description of the gospel, just in case we don't know what it is. He says at the end, he kind of gets it in, doesn't he? He says, you, Jack, Chalmers, many of us here, you turned to God from idols. There was something you loved. Something that you said you're hard on that wasn't God. You turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. He became your Lord. And to wait for his Son from heaven. We'll get to that in the back end of the letter. Jesus is not here. He is returning. You wait for him from heaven and live in light of the reality that he is coming back, whom he raised from the dead. Your hope is in resurrection when you die. Your hope is in Jesus, who delivers us through his death on the cross from the wrath, the judgment of God that is to come. That's the true gospel. And so the marks of real Christianity, a real church, faith, love, and hope, deep conviction, cost, and joy, telling others of Jesus, others see the real difference the gospel makes. Remember why Paul wrote this letter? Encouragement to the church. So be encouraged if this describes you. And if it doesn't, well, let me encourage you, it's far better to be real than to be something that looks real but isn't, and you know it in your heart, don't you? It's far better to be Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your living word. We thank you that it is real and true and powerful. When we hear it, it just smacks of truth. And we pray, Lord, individually that we would ponder these things and consider, are we real Christians? Is there faith and love and hope? Is there conviction of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Is there cost? And is there joy even in cost? Is there a desire to tell others of the Lord Jesus? Do others see a difference in my life?
that is true even with all our fitful struggles. May your word reassure us to keep on, keep standing fast. And if it perhaps invites us to consider that we're not like that in our lives, we're we're not true Christians, then by your Spirit will you draw us in to the realm of reality, away from that which is false. And we thank you that you are a gracious and kind and loving Savior, and that is always, always room in your kingdom for those who come in humility, convicted by your Spirit. And we pray that all in Jesus' name.